Welcome to the Veterinary Pulse podcast. My name is Jordan Benchia. I'm the executive director of the VIN Foundation. Veterinary Pulse is the heartbeat of the profession. Join us as we talk with veterinary colleagues about critical topics from student debt to mental health and share stories. Stories connect us as humans, as animals, as a veterinary community. This podcast is made possible through individual donors like yourself and our technology partnership with VIN, the Veterinary Information Network. Thank you for being here. This episode, VIN Foundation board member, Dr. Matt Holland, is having a conversation with surgeon and public speaker, Dr. Bronwyn Fulliger, about practicing all around the world, the importance of humor, and prioritizing self-care. Please check the episode notes for bios, links, and information mentioned. Thank you for listening. So welcome, Bronwyn. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. Um, And for the listeners, uh, we met a few weeks ago at the Big Student Careers Fair, and um, I was in the audience for one of Bronwyn's presentations, and what she said and also how she said it compelled me to reach out to her and get to know her a little bit and fast forward to her being a guest on the podcast. So, so thanks again for joining us. And I guess we'll start with um, what's your story? Where, where were you born and raised? Well, I've been, uh, I've been away from Australia for about 10 years, but I was um, born and raised in Brisbane, Australia um, and spent a, a brief stint as well in Canada growing up, but mainly in Australia. And uh, did you did you have a defining moment for when you knew you wanted to become a veterinarian? Uh, not not really a defining moment. I was always interested in in the outdoors and the natural world and in in sort of science and discovery. Um, there was a period when I was a younger child that I wanted to be a a tree surgeon and. Um, actually an arborist and actually had a, a t-shirt made by my grandmother that had Dr. Fuligar tree surgeon written on it, which was um, pretty, pretty cool at the time. Um, but then in kind of early high school made a, a pivot, I think when our family got our first dog and we started taking the dog to the veterinarian, we had a really lovely local vet that let me be really involved in all the vet visits. And so that kind of, um, yeah, encouraged me to, to pursue that, that career path. Do you still have the shirt? I don't, you know, I wish I did. It'd be, it'd be really kind of cool to wear these days, you know? (laughs) Yeah, that'd be super cool. (laughs) I mean, there's still time to become a tree surgeon. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I've got most of the, most of the basic skills, power tools and, you know, some spatial awareness. (laughs) I like climbing trees. So yeah. (laughs) And, uh, I, I, I like, I hear already in that, in your story, like we're not even very far in your story. And I hear, you know, you had a lovely vet who helped you out and like that, that seems to be so crucial to like anybody's life course is, you know, having a good teacher or a good coach or a good mentor. Um, so you, you got to school and uh, when did you, when did you decide that you wanted to become a surgeon? Like, was that before you even got to school or when you were in school or yeah, how did that come about? Yeah. So when I was at vet school, I, uh, I was a generalist. I liked 
I liked everything. Um, I thought I wanted to be a, an equine vet for, for quite a while. Um, I sort of was a loved horses growing up and um, yeah, that, that really appealed to me. But then as vet school progressed, um, there were some mentors that sort of suggested that maybe I do an internship at, at a few points, but really when I graduated, I wanted to go into mixed practice and kind of test out all the skills that I'd learned and um, yeah, move to a different place and just kind of try everything out. So I actually did mixed practice for a, a couple of years after graduation. Um, and then it wasn't until about two and a half, three years after I graduated that I started to realize that I wanted to go back to school and, and do some more training. And um, the part of the part of um, my life as a vet that I felt like I, I didn't want to give up was um, was surgery. I guess I just liked the, the contrast between um, communication and talking to clients and developing those relationships. And then that sort of contrast where then you have a day or an afternoon in a clinic where you're doing a really focused um, skill when you're really sort of present in a, a little space by yourself that's quiet and you're working on something really uh, practical. So I guess I, I enjoy that, that aspect. And so that's one of the reasons why I decided to, to sort of keep pursuing surgery. And I, you know, I might, I might have glossed past the mixed animal practice part, except for I listened to an episode of the vet vault where you were the guest and you told a story about um, mixed animal practice that also involved a tree. So yeah. I, don't, I don't want you to tell it to humiliate you, but because you learned some really valuable things, I think that would be good for the audience to hear. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's my, uh, it's my nearest, my near death experience, which fortunately obviously turned out okay in the end. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I was on call. Um, it was, was my first, first job as a new grad and, um, uh, it was Easter and in, in Australia, that's kind of at the start of your year as a new grad. So I think I'd been at the practice for about six weeks and I was on call for the four day Easter long weekend. Um, so it was just me and my little car, um, little Subaru. And we were on call for a fairly big radius of poppy farms and um, small animal emergencies. And I'd, there'd been a, a series of emergencies that had lined up and the bottom line was I hadn't slept in about 24, 36 hours. Um, and I went out to uh, a, a local producer's property and he'd had several cows die unexpectedly, sudden death. And because it was Queensland and it's summer, if you don't you know, do your post-mortem exam straight away, then you're going to lose all, um, all chance of getting valuable information. And so it, um, you know, it seemed important that I go out and investigate why these animals have been dying. So it was yeah. nighttime when I drove out, um, end of a long yeah, end of a long day, end of a long weekend. And I did a, a post-mortem very thorough on the on the cow. And then at the end of the, the procedure, I, um, I'd i been using my car headlights to light the procedure. And so I said to the farmer, oh, can you please just wait wait for one sec? I'm just going to check that my car turns on here before you leave because um, we're out in the you know sort of fairly remote paddock. And turned the car on and, and I was silly. I was covered in blood and cow manure and you know I was disgusting so I didn't want to get into the car so I stuck my hand in through the open car window to turn on the car which obviously is a you know silly thing to do but anyway I wasn't thinking clearly so I did that and then the car proceeded to drive away um into the dark night and so mistake number two was thinking that I could 
stop this moving vehicle uh, by myself. So I sprinted off after the car and was trying to jump in through the car's window to, I don't know what, grab the handbrake or somehow stop the moving vehicle. And I didn't see a tree um, coming up and I got, I essentially got squashed between the car and the tree and um, pretty seriously injured. So the car obviously proceeded to drive off and total itself in the corner of the paddock. Fortunately, didn't injure anybody else. And um, yeah, I was, I was on the ground in a pretty bad way. And, and fortunately, the very lovely um, you know, farmer and his family were there and they called an ambulance and yeah, I got, got picked up by the ambulance and taken to the, to the hospital and everything turned out okay. But I, I just still remember when I was in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, that the on-call phone just wouldn't stop ringing. It just kept ringing. So even, you know, even in the ambulance and, and eventually the, the paramedics answered the phone <laughs> and it was, it was still, you know, more calls coming in. It was just one of those crazy weekends. So yeah, I spent about, uh, I got airlifted, um, you know, with a, in a sort of medivac situation and to the nearest city and spent about a week in hospital and six weeks off work. Um, so yeah, pretty, pretty serious injury. And, and all kind of from silly decisions that I made when I was really, really tired. And so I think moral of that story is, you know, nobody's, nobody's superhuman. And so there comes a point if you're having, there comes a point where keeping going, even if you feel like it's, you know, you need to, for the sake of your patient, to get to a point where you're not really helping anybody by carrying on. And so you need to ask for help um, or, or say no or delegate or see if you can, you know, do things a different, a different way rather than putting yourself and potentially others in danger. But yeah, that was yeah. a crazy new grad story. I know it's, it's the, I'm glad you're healthy, obviously. Um, that part is not fun to, to talk about or relive, I'm sure. But um, I think it's important to, to mention what you just said, like nobody's superhuman and you can't do it all. But as a new grad, and you probably want to, I imagine. Um, and it's hard to say no. And um, yeah, I mean, do you have, um, for new grads out there, do you have, you know, like one piece of advice you would give them or, or two, if you have two? Oh, <laughs> I've got, I've got lots of advice. Um, but I think in, in that, in that vein, in the vein of kind of having boundaries and knowing yourself, I think, um, one one thing that a, a mentor said to me at one point when I was having one of these, you know, really long weekends is that no no veterinary patient's life is worth more than than your life. And so if, if you're getting to a point where you're feeling like keeping going puts yourself in danger and being really, really tired is is one of those things, then yeah. you know, it doesn't need to be a doesn't need to be fanfare or anything like that. You just need to kind of calmly speak to someone and say, look, I'm I'm at a point where I don't think keeping going is in anyone's best interest. So I need some, some time off and maybe we can, you know, reorganize the schedule or, you know, I need to take the next day off because I haven't slept in 24 hours or something like that. Um, and having, that's where having kind of good um, management and mentorship in your, in your practice, particularly in your first practice um, is really important to have those people that'll have your back that are looking out for you. Um, yeah. To, to sort of keep you, keep you sane and, and keep you going, you know, make your, make your job sustainable because, you know, you go through a lot of, um, you know, crazy hard times through study and, and internships and residencies, but ultimately this is a career that, that you're hoping will last you many, many years 
after all that training and hard work's done. And so you want to make it sustainable, you know, to carry on going and, and keep it, keep it enjoyable. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I speak as someone who's definitely experienced, uh, you know, being pretty burned out at times. So it's, difficult to avoid but I think yeah having really good um, mentors that you can talk to about it is key okay so I two things there that I want to touch on and I know they're related I'll, we'll figure out a way to make them related but um, mentorship and burnout and you said especially mentorship with the first job how like how do you know what to look for in a mentor like how do you know if um, where you are interviewing has good mentorship what are the telltale signs uh, I think, yeah, for, for new graduates, I guess I was really lucky. I, I went into a practice that did have really excellent mentorship. And when I was searching for new graduate jobs, I talked to other veterinarians who had graduated from my vet school recently. And That's smart. You know, Australia's pretty small. And, and certainly if you took one state of the US, for example, and you said, okay, I'm going to look at the, the veterinarians that graduated from my school in the last couple of years, and maybe you're friends with them because you used to do clubs together or they were you know, you knew them through social events and things like that. So keep in touch with them and, and talk to them about where they've worked. And so if you're interviewing for a job, uh, usually a good indication of if they've got good mentorship is if they've had new graduates work for them before and who have stayed on more than a year, say. So if, you, if you're in a job and they're routinely taking new graduates and each one of those graduates is staying for, you know, a couple of years, two, three years, this probably means that the, the job's pretty used to taking new grads. They're pretty good at kind of guiding them through that job and if you speak to those graduates and they share that they've had a, a positive experience and that's a pretty good indication that the practice is well set up to provide mentorship for new grads um, and they're, they're not going to leave you you know totally alone on your first day with you know an enormous dog spay or something that you you know you're going to feel really stressed about um, so I would just ask the questions and sort of ask them are you willing to to be a mentor and how is how are my first few weeks in practice going to look so is my schedule going to be different? Is there a certain list of competencies that you're going to ensure that I um, get better at? You know, can I shadow you for the first few uh, equine call outs, say, before I have to do one by myself? Um, or same with anything that you feel sort of uncomfortable with. You know, I think someone else should be in the building when you're doing your first few surgeries to give you a hand. Um, maybe for the first few weeks, you want to have your consults half booked so you've got extra time. Mm. Just things like that. But I think, yeah, talking to other new graduates who have worked at the practice is... Um, one of the one of the most useful things you can do, and, and same goes for internships. You know, talking to previous interns and just asking them to if they would mind sharing their experiences there, and you know the positives and negatives of each of each place. Yeah, and it sounds like you're saying to be direct about on like what makes you uncomfortable. You know, if if it makes me as a new grad feel uncomfortable to do this kind of surgery, be direct beforehand and say, you know, will I have mentorship with this? Um, rather yeah. than just rather than just hoping and praying. Yeah, I think it's it's. Uh, I think most employers would rather you be open and upfront about something that you're not as confident with than be overconfident and have something go wrong. So I think nobody expects you as a new graduate to be an excellent surgeon. Like you know, there's no way you can be. You've only been learning surgery for maybe a year. So, um, well, this is just an example, but really any skill. And so if you're keen to learn and you're, you accept feedback and you're asking for help when you need it, and then you're steadily building on those skills and, and building your confidence up, that's what, that's what employers I think are looking for rather than somebody who comes in on day one, who can, you know, do a spay in 45 minutes or tube a horse every time, or, you know, whatever these sort of day one competencies are. 
Yeah. And so I figured out a way to connect the two mentorship and burnout, because I think good mentorship reduces the likelihood of burnout, but it doesn't totally prevent it because I mean, at least the way I think about burnout is you have to feel it. You have to be it at least once before, you know, um, but like, how do you, how do you think about burnout as it relates to, um, practice? And also if, if, as it relates to being a new grad is different than, than that too. Yeah, I think there's two aspects of, um, uh, burnout in, in veterinary medicine. And I'm, I'll just qualify this with, I'm, I'm not an expert on, uh, you know, veterinary mental health or, or burnout or anything like that. This is just kind of based on my own, you know, experience over the last 10 years or, or more in practice. And I think there's two facets of it. One is that, um, you know, our, our industry is very, very demanding, both physically and emotionally. And um, there's some, some longstanding um, expectations of veterinarians that that will will work certain hours and do certain things and so I think that's that's gradually changing in the sense to to make the profession more sustainable for for veterinarians and and vet technicians and nurses um, and I think the other aspect that that I think is now getting taught better in vet schools that that maybe wasn't 10 or 15 years ago is um, knowing yourself a little bit better so recognizing how to how to pick up early signs that things aren't going great and how to take care of yourself a little bit better and maybe set better boundaries, foster your life outside of work um, and be aware of what, what makes you tick and, and what doesn't and try and pursue the things that bring you um, enjoyment that, you know, that, that constitute a good day at work for you. So I think there's two facets. There's kind of the, the industry side of things and then the individual side of things. And they have to kind of work in concert in order for us to have veterinarians and veterinary staff that are, um, highly capable and, and doing a really great job for their patients and their clients and also um, doing it in a way that that keeps them happy and safe and and practicing vet med you know for a long and fulfilling time yeah that that life outside of work is so important I remember as a student um, I didn't really grasp that until third year because and, and I'm I'm calling being a student work in in this example but um, I, all my friends were from vet school. And so even when we were doing non vet things, like we were watching a movie or playing video games, it was still like with my vet friends. And it wasn't until third year that I started re-engaging with my sister and my best friend before I moved. And, um, I didn't know, like, I kind of thought, you know, that they, they were saying to me like, oh, it's, it's fine. You know, we know you're busy. Like vet school is really busy. It's okay if we don't talk all the time. Um, and they were trying to support me, but I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, it's like one of those things you don't know what you've got until it's gone. Um, so yeah, the life outside of work piece is huge. Um, and so you said, I want to pick back up on your story. You said like you were, you were keen to learn and, or you, you think new grads should be keen to learn. That's a, that's a key aspect for being a new grad. Um, but what were you keen to learn after vet school? You know, I'm getting to the surgery residency. Oh yeah. So in my first, in my first job, I was, I was keen to learn everything. I was trying to improve my skills in, in all areas. And I think that's, that's really tough. It's one of the challenges of, of mixed practice is that you're, you're trying to learn 
a whole bunch of different things all at once. And so you're, you're training yourself to become a better and better generalist. And I think what I was hoping for was to get really good at one thing. Um, in the end, it, it sort of suited my personality better to try and focus down on, on one thing and try and do that really well, as opposed to doing lots and lots of things well, if that makes sense. So yeah. that's kind of how I, I decided to specialize. And I think that that probably resonates with many people that decide to specialize or people that decide not to, um, because in order to become a small animal surgeon, you have to, or any specialty, you have to give up a lot of other things. So, you know, I've, I've given up a large animal practice. Uh, you know, I, <laughs> I don't think I'll go back to, to being an equine vet ever. And so you've got to sort of say goodbye to that and be okay with that. And, and likewise, I've, um, I do some charity work, so I do do some, and I occasionally, um, work in GP clinics as locums or, or fill in, um, that sort of thing. So I do do a little bit of GP, but, but yeah, I'm not a, uh, I'm, I'm a better surgeon than I am a, a GP these days. So you've got to be able to, you've got to be willing to kind of give some things up in order to get, get much better at, um, at your chosen specialty. And was the, was the education in the States very different from the education in Australia, like compare and contrast the, the, like the systems there, the educational systems? Yeah. So I, I think they, I think they are slightly different. I guess I'm bear in mind that I'm commenting on Australian vet school between, you know, 2003 sure. and 2007, and then the yeah. US system kind of much more recently now. So there's, there's a bit of a time lapse in there as well. Um, but certainly that one of the big differences in Australia, at least at our vet school is that we were much younger. So, you know, I went in straight from high school, but most people went in after one or two years of, of undergrad. And so they're, your first year vet students were between 18 and well, there were, there were some, you know, mature age students, some older ones, but most people were sort of 18, 19, 20. And so, you know, we were fully done and graduated out there working by the time we were 22 to 25. Um, whereas in the US students tend to be older because they've done undergrad first. Um, so they're a little bit older, a little bit wiser um, and they pay a lot more for veterinary school. You know, mm -hmm. the, the, um, the debt load that you're taking on to be a vet student is, is not a joke. And so, you know, m most vet students, I think, take that really seriously and apply themselves in a much more um, diligent fashion. I think, you know, we had a lot of fun at vet school. I, I still studied a lot, but, it, but definitely the, um, yeah, we, we sort of mucked around a lot. There was a lot of social events and um, a lot of laughs. We had a we had a really good time, and and I think our training was much more at that time training to be a, a generalist. Um, and so, lots of the details that I think US vet students are expected to know, um, we learned concepts, and as opposed to mm -hmm. to details. Um, having said that, I mean I sat the the US um, qualification exams in order to become registered in the US, and I. I felt that the stuff that I had to know for those exams, I had learned in vet, in vet school in Australia. So I think the actual education in the end is, is quite similar, but maybe the style is just a little bit different. Okay. Um, and I guess my, my first impression of being in a North American vet teaching hospital was that I, I was just in awe of the size of it and, and all these specialists and the fact that there yeah. were interns and residents. It was just really neat to have this massive group of people all under one roof, all doing these amazing things with these incredible facilities and that sort of scale, um, you know, doesn't exist in, in many other parts of the world really in terms of, you know, you know the, 
the facilities and the brain power in, in the institutions in North America. Yeah, uh, I remember I took a, um, I had a two week externship during fourth year uh, in India and was talking with students there and telling them about what you just described, how we had like any specialty you could name, we had it at our teaching hospital. And they were like, wow, 90% of our vet school grads go to food animal. Like we don't, we don't really take care of pets the way that you do. And I like, it sounds obvious now that I say it cause I've learned it, but it struck me in that moment. I was like, wow. Yeah. It really is very different. Like depending on where you are in the world. Um, and you mentioned in there, the, the cost of education in the US, which is exorbitant. Um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention the student debt center um, from the VIN Foundation. And you though, you wanted to share a resource too. Is that right? Yeah, so I, um, I work on a podcast called The Vet Vault. And The Vet Vault uh, was started by Gerardo Poli and Hubert Pinstra, and they are two Australian veterinarians. And um, Hubert has recently branched out um, and started a clinical channel of the podcast. So that's a podcast where you can find specialists giving really useful kind of clinical tips. So I, I co-host the surgery section, but there's an emergency critical care and a medicine section. And it's very conversational. It's pretty entertaining, um, but they're great kind of 20 minute to half an hour bite-sized segments of of clinical information that you can listen to in the car on the way to work. So check it out, um, especially if you're a, you know, a recent graduate or a vet in practice trying to uh, hone your skills in those areas. I think it's a, it's a really great resource worth, worth a look. Yeah, that's great. And if, if it sounds like Bronwyn is a polished speaker, I imagine that's part of the reason why. Um, I, think, I think you're the second guest we've had who also has their own podcast and yeah, I feel like it's the one of the number one pandemic activities, isn't it? Starting a, <laughs> starting a podcast. <laughs> well, so so yeah, like I I know that you used to in the before times, you used to travel all around the world and do you know do locum work and relief work, um, kind of wherever the work was is where you'd be. But that's I imagine that's changed during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, it did change. Um, so pre, pre-pandemic, I was working uh, in the US, Canada, and Australia. And then I also did some volunteer work um, abroad with a few of the, the vet charity organizations doing some teaching and training of veterinarians overseas in surgery, uh, which I really enjoyed. And yeah, when the pandemic came, it was a bit of a, a, bit of a shock to the system, like for, for many of us, um, because the travel component of my job um, wasn't really possible anymore. So I've taken on just some some longer assignments since the pandemic hit. I've been lucky to, to work in some some great practices just sort of on longer term bases to avoid um, yeah avoid the travel and stay in one spot for a little bit more. But suddenly a a change of uh, change of pace for me over the last year or so. And do you think like if you could wave a magic wand and end the pandemic today, do you think you would go back to the previous? lifestyle or do you think you would take pieces of the current lifestyle slash work style and and carry them with you yeah i think a combination one thing i've enjoyed about um staying in one place is that you get to know the the people in the area in one place a lot better so i do enjoy that and i i enjoy 
forming those longer term kind of relationships with colleagues and um, yeah, people in the community. Okay, one thing, one thing that I have to bring up before before we part ways is uh, also on the episode I heard the coffee. You said the coffee is very different between like the U.S. and Australia. Oh yes, I mean. It, it would be un-Australian of me to not be a, a complete <laughs> coffee snob. So the coffee culture in Australia is very, um, Australia has, I think Australians will agree, the, some of the yeah. best coffee in the world. I know. And I uh, yeah, it's as a coffee shops in Australia tend to be independently owned. So there are, uh, you know, Starbucks tried to come to Australia, but they, they went out of business because their coffee wasn't good enough uh, for the, wow. the pallets, the pallets of the population, and wow. everyone likes people like to support uh, local small businesses. So, yeah, there's lots and lots of coffee shops, and all of them, well, most of them serve really excellent coffee um, because there's so much competition. So you can't really get away with serving less than excellent coffee. And I guess our our definition of coffee is is espresso coffee. So a flat white would be the classic Australian coffee, which is I think they've made their way now to the US. So many people sort of know what a flat white is now, but um, yeah, I'm actually, I've actually got one in my hand right now here. <laughs> I, up yeah, the corner I, this morning. <laughs> I prefer espresso to like the auto drip or mm-hmm. I, yeah, I like the more intense version of coffee. Um, but I had no idea that Starbucks came in and was, and was asked kindly to go away. Yeah, there's, there's I think one or two Starbucks in in each major city. But if you think of a city like Sydney with 5 million people, there's a couple of Starbucks, you know, like it's not, it's nothing yeah. like, um, nothing like North America. No, I mean, I, I lived in Chicago and there would be two or three Starbucks on the same block. And, yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's not an exaggeration. Um, yeah, that's, oh, that's nuts. Um, okay. So again, if, if we could wave a magic wand and end the pandemic, where, if there's one place you could recommend uh, that, somebody to visit that's who's never been to Australia, where would it be? Ooh. Well, I'm a little bit, um, I'm a little bit biased because I'm from Southeast Queensland. Um, but I think if you can experience any of the, the coastline between sort of north of Sydney and the Sunshine Coast, you'll, you'll be spoiled for choice in terms of some of the most beautiful beaches in the world. Um, I spent a bit of time up at Noosa um, in the last few weeks surfing and, and there's a, sort of a gorgeous national park full of rainforest that juts out into the Pacific Ocean and there's some point breaks along there that are just some of the most beautiful surfing um, surf spots in the world. So I think that's a pretty special spot, one of my that favorites. Sounds beautiful. Do you surf? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm learning. It's a, it's a lifelong process. Surfing is, <laughs> is one of the most difficult sports to learn. The learning curve is really, really, really slow, but um, but I love it. Yeah, I'm more or much less can, yeah. more or less difficult than surgery. Oh, that's a good question. I was thinking that the other day. I was thinking as I was getting a bit frustrated in the surf, you know, getting walloped by waves again and again, and thinking, <laughs> why is this so hard? And I thought, well, I learned surgery as an adult, so I guess I can learn surfing. And I was thinking, imagine if I spent three years of my life in a surfing residency, then I bet, then I bet I could I could become you know pretty proficient at it. It's just time time in the water. So yeah, I think they're, I think they're equivalent. I think they're equally hard. Like if somebody, you're definitely not going to learn 
either of them in, in just a week. <laughs> yeah, I like that perspective. Like, yeah, if you did a surfing residency, you'd probably have some skills that a lot of other people don't. And and I don't know, you still might think you don't have it down perfectly, which is true, but like I'm just relating it back to, you know, to new grads or people who have been practicing for a couple of years. You're not gonna know how to do everything right out of school. And um, but still you've you've got like the skills and the training because you've you've been doing it for years. You just have to apply it. Yeah, and that you're always you're always learning. I think anything anything you do in, in vet med and, and I guess most things in life too, you're always learning and improving. And you know, I, I liken surgery sometimes to, you know, if you watch the best person in the world run, you know, an ultra marathon, they'll run it faster than anybody else, but the actual race is still really hard for them. And and I think the same goes for things like surgery where you can watch the best surgeon in the world and they look like everything's always easy, but they're still gonna have some days where things go wrong, it's really hard. You know, that the harder procedures you try that you know, you're pushing yourself to the edges of your comfort zone and, and sometimes you're going to have complications and, and things like that. So you've got to have that kind of mindset that you're always, always expanding your, uh, expanding your knowledge base and, and being, being okay with the fact that it's not always going to go perfectly. And I think, yeah, many, many of us veterinarians are perfectionists being included. And so that, that can be kind of a difficult thing to do get a handle on, but I think it really helps if you can have that mindset that, you know, we're all just continuing to improve. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So you're, everybody's always learning. Totally agree. Are you learning what you like? Is there something that you're going for in terms of like, I want to own my own practice or like, I want to be, you know, I want to be the head surgeon at a school. Like, are you, are you going for anything like that or just kind of riding the waves, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, I think one thing that I'd like to do more of and, and get better at is, is teaching. You know, I think if I look, look at the parts of my job that I enjoy the most, it's usually something to do with interpersonal communication and teaching, um, you know, sharing, sharing with others and helping other people to, to feel more comfortable in, in surgery. And, and hopefully my experience, um, you know, if you share your own kind of struggles and trials and tribulations and triumphs with other people then they can feel like you know inspired to kind of give things a go that they wouldn't have otherwise done so I think whether it be through you know more volunteer postings teaching people in other countries or whether it be working at a veterinary school um or even just through through podcasts and things like that that's the the side of things that I'm focusing on more at the moment yeah okay and so um if you have one thing to leave with the audience um, what would you, what would you hope that they take away from you? Oh, can I have more than one thing? You can. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm an easy sell on that. All right. So I think, um, my two or well, three main things, the oh, first one, three. I think three, one, one's really small. The first one is just, if you can find humor in the everyday, uh, you will have a much better time. I think in, in most things in life, but especially as a vet, I mean, we are, we're animal doctors, which is a wonderful and sort of crazy profession when you think about it. And, you know, animals do silly things. People give their pets ridiculous names. You know, we can, we can laugh 
with our clients, we could laugh at our patients. There's always something silly going on in the vet industry, in the vet clinic. And so if you can find those little chestnuts of, of joy and share them with your clients too, if, if, they're, if their pet does something ridiculous in the clinic, share it with them. And that, you know, helps to build those relationships and it helps to make your day much better, I think. So that, that would be a huge thing. Well, um, I got to interrupt and say, that's part of why I wanted you to tell the story too about the car and the tree because when I heard you tell it on the other podcast you had a great sense of humor about it and you probably didn't write when it happened I imagine while you were being airlifted um but the like the fact that you can look back on that and find parts to laugh and smile is I think that says a lot about you and that's oh it is I I think even at the time it was it was pretty humorous like I (laughs) I mean, once I realized that I was going to be okay, yeah. you know, getting, getting wheeled into the ER wearing coveralls that are covered in cow <laughs> entrails and manure and blood and having the, the ER team, you know, just like on Grey's Anatomy, you know, cutting off the coveralls with a pair of scissors, getting all excited about it. <laughs> and I was like, it's not with my the, blood. It's the, it's the cow's blood. It's not my blood. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> with a deep regulator ready oh yeah it was it was like it was something else and then my I remember my boss um he was a, a straight talking Australian guy he came to visit me in the hospital and looked at my chest x-ray and the uh the interns at the hospital were all sort of mulling over my x-ray and trying to work out what was going on and it was pretty clear even to me that you know one one lung field was completely white on the x-ray and the other lung field was was black and so we all know that's abnormal and my boss just walked in he said I'm no radiologist Bron <laughs> but the right side of your chest is effed and I <laughs> and all the interns just turned around and looked at him and, and he just it was just one of those like classic country practice moments anyway no, it was I think even at that time I, I think uh, my family probably didn't find it very amusing there were some touch and go moments but I think you know, trying to retell my ridiculous story of how I managed to injure myself to the ER, you know, yeah. rounds team every morning they'd come past my bed and I'd have to retell it. It was pretty, pretty silly. So, yeah, I think, I think humor is a good, if you can, having a bad day and you can manage to find something funny, that that's very helpful. And I think the other thing which um, goes for vets both in and out of practice is just kind of keeping track in your veterinary life, your career of, what are the days that bring you enjoyment? Like what are the things that make you tick? And I listened to a podcast by Justine Lee, Dr. Justine Lee, who's uh, yeah. the founder of a vet girl. And she had uh, yeah. this is her quote, which is one of my favorites. And she just said, if it doesn't spark joy, triage it out of your life. And I, you know, just coming from an ECC uh, specialist, I thought that was pretty funny. So if there's, yeah. you know, after you've been doing things for a while, if there's parts of practice or parts of, you know, your job that you, that don't bring you joy, then see if you can find a way to, to shift your focus, you know, away from those things and towards the things that do bring you joy. So I think, yeah. Is there, is there a third? Oh, and the third, <laughs> the third, which you already touched on. So I was going to bring it up again, but my third oh. one would be, I, I'm a strong, well, for me personally, the thing that has helped me a lot is having, interests and, and life outside of work and mm. having you mentioned before you know we make wonderful friends who are veterinarians and, and veterinary team members but I think it's really important also to to foster friendships outside of the vet industry because they're the people when you've had a a really rough week like if I go 
trail running with the local running club, people there don't know me as, as a vet. They know me as Bron who likes to go running, who, you know, there are, I have other identities apart from just being a vet. And it's really refreshing to sort of switch out of the, out of clinic mode into a, another part of your life that, um, yeah, that, that brings you happiness and, and fulfillment that's not at work. So trying to find one or two things that, and, and people, you know, seek out those relationships outside of the vet industry because I think they help to keep us grounded and they make us better when we do head back into the, into the vet world. Yeah. And back to number two, I, at the risk of sounding cheesy, I, it's been a joy to talk with you today. Um, that brought Thanks, joy Matt. Yeah. No, I've enjoyed, I've enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Yeah. Hopefully it's been helpful. It's helped me. So, you know, the rest is playing with house money. I don't know if, I don't know if you know that phrase. Maybe that's an American phrase. I think it's an American phrase, (laughs) but I get the idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, good. Yeah. Good to talk with you. And thanks so much again for joining us. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Veterinary Pulse. Please check the episode notes for additional information referenced in the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please follow, subscribe, and share review. We welcome feedback and hope you will tune in again. You can find out more about the VIN Foundation through our website, vinfoundation.org, and our social media channels. Thank you for being here. Be well.